It is a great pleasure to welcome you to this interview with Christopher Koke. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your work. Christopher Koke is Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics. He's a former serving member of the Council of the Royal United Services Institute, a former NATO fellow and a regular lecturer at defense colleges in the UK, US, Rome, Singapore and Tokyo. His most recent books are The Rise of the Civilizational State from 2019, Rebooting Clausewitz from 2017 and Future of War from 2015. My name is Ulvai Gede. I'm a professor at the Danish National School of Performing Arts and a member of the research group The Aesthetics of Late Modern War, which earlier today hosted the seminar War and Philosophy. This seminar is part of an ongoing series of seminars, the War Seminars, where we, the research group, invite internationally, internationally renowned researchers working on war and violence to discuss questions such as what is the future of war? How can we conceptualize the changing character of war? Which insights from the humanities can we bring to bear on the topic of warfare? What is the role of aesthetics? What is the role of philosophy? What is the role of media theory in thinking through contemporary warfare? In today's seminar, War and Philosophy, you participated alongside with Vivian Giapri from King's College, Elaine Scarry from Howard University, and Joseph Vogel from Humboldt University in Berlin. Your presentation today, today was titled, Will War Still Need Us? What Future for Human Agency in War? One of your key points was that humans are indeed likely to retain control and agency in future wars, even if machines will become increasingly autonomous in the sense of making decisions that affect life and death. Could you tell us a bit more about this, please? Well, one of the main contributions of uh, Clausewitz's thought is to get us to distinguish between the nature of war and the character of war. And the nature of war, he argued, is unchanging, and the character of war changes all the time. So clearly we're living through a, a new era of history. We've moved from muscular power, the bow and arrow, the spear, etc., to chemical power, gunpowder, to nuclear power in 1945, and the digital age now. And artificial intelligence, robotics, these are all part of the digital age. And so we have the changing character of war. The nature of war, however, has remained unchanged, uh, and one of the unchanging elements of that nature is that it's what Thucydides called the human thing. It, it requires uh, human beings. It is of interest only to human beings. It is uh, practiced only by human beings. One could argue that point. One could mention ants and one could mention chimpanzees, but I would still fight in the trenches saying that when it comes to intraspecific violence, human beings are the only species to actually conduct war. So the question is, to what extent will uh, robots, for example, replace us? Uh, and were they to do so, would they be fighting wars on their own behalf, or perhaps on our behalf? Would war cease to be the human thing? My argument, therefore, is when we look at any life species, any biological life form, of which Homo sapiens happens to be one, we might use constructively a model first put forward by a Dutch scientist, Nico Tinbergen, who won the Nobel Prize back in 1973, who says, look at four things. What are the origins of any human activity? So what are the origins of war? What are the mechanisms by which he meant cultural mechanisms, which power it? 
what are, what's its history? How does it evolve over time? Does it have a, a future? Is it continuing to evolve into the future? And finally, but not least, what's its function? How does it actually function? How does it work? So if you look at artificial intelligence in this respect, I think you come to the following conclusions. First of all, it's part of the biological, our biological makeup. We are a species that wishes to improve its performance, whether that is physical performance, hence the invention of tools, or cerebral performance, so that we can think thoughts that we haven't thought before. Also, the invention of tools, of which the computer is the most recent. Artificial intelligence enables us to improve and augment our performance, both physically and mentally. So in that sense, it seems to me to be very much part of the human thing. When it comes to culture, the mechanisms that have powered war include uh, epic poetry, the novel, cinema, the things that get people to join up and want to be soldiers effectively. Mm. One of the things now that has changed uh, are video games. Uh, video games are used by organizations like ISIS to encourage nine-year-olds to fight their crusades in the privacy of their bedroom before they're old enough to go off to Syria and fight for real. Uh, but the militaries uh, in the Western world, and also in countries like China, are using video games and video gamers to try to improve the performance of artificial intelligence. So one example, for example, would be a video game called Fortnite, which is now being used by the British government uh, as a model for a military uh, comprehensive synthetic all operational environment which is going to be required in order to use AI systems effectively in the battle space or the battle theater. The third uh, element is, speaks for itself, the changing character of war. So as um, the artificial intelligence uh, office in the Pentagon, recently set up by the way, said in its report in February this year, um, AI is going to change the character of war yet again. And I think we can take that as a given. And finally, the functions well, in human terms, being human beings, we are given to certain social psychological conditions. For example, cognitive dissonance. We often misinterpret the behavior of other people. We think they're more threatening than they actually are. Or confirmation bias, when we can't find those uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We just know that they're there. They've just been buried more effectively, as Donald Rumsfeld famously said. Evidence of absence is not absence of evidence premature cognitive closure, we get fed up debating all day, let's cut to the chase, let's just go in and do something. Now obviously machines suffer from none of those conditions because they have no social psychology as such, but they are wholly dependent upon another feature of human nature, which is curiosity, which is the basis of all scientific progress. We are interested and curious about how the world works, We're interested and curious about reality, but particularly how can we, we can reshape reality for our own ends. And hence we have science and scientists. And artificial intelligence is just merely a, a manifestation of intellectual curiosity. And we will continue to build these systems because we think we need them. And even if we decide not to deploy them, we at least have to know whether they exist, how we might deploy them. So for all of those reasons, my first point is war is going to continue to remain the human thing. Now, if you look at human agency in more specific terms, it seems to me that it involves three things that make us different as a species from every other. 
Uh, one is that we are, are motivated to set ourselves goals in life. They can be very modest goals, or if you're Alexander the Great, they can be incredibly ambitious goals to conquer the known world. We also have teleological uh, purpose in life. In other words, we ask ourselves questions about who we are, what we're doing here, why we're in this position in the first place. It's very important that we are teleological beings with a purpose and, a, and an end. Our end basically is that if we m manage to make it to that bed at home where we die uh, in relatively non-violent circumstances, we'll want to ask ourselves what contribution we've made. It can be a very modest contribution, but at least we want to think that our life has had some meaning for others as well as for ourselves, usually the family. But it could be your profession, it could be the military. And the third uh, element is that we are governed by, we are rational creatures governed by reason. We are not governed by logic. We may have invented logic in the case of mathematics, for example. We may play a very logical game in the case of chess, but we don't run our lives by logic. We run our lives by being rational. The economists uh, fall into the mistake of thinking that we are homo economicus, in other words, that we are guided entirely by self-interest, it's a mistake, not because we are not interested in what is uh, in our interests, but unfortunately we're not intelligent always to get it right, to know what's in our real interests. Frequently other people observing our behavior will tell us that we're acting in a way that is not consistent with our real interests. But still, those are the three elements. And if you look at human beings, you will see that machines cannot replicate any of those things. They are motiveless. We have been given a motive by natural selection, which means we set ourselves ends, but we also do the consequence management, which means we have to make sure that the ends we set are realistic, and that they're not going to upset so many people that we will find ourselves confronted with an alliance of people against us. That's why we are intentional creatures as well, constantly trying to assess the intentions of other people, their intentions and their intentions towards us. So for those reasons, uh, I think in terms of intentionality and motivation, machines have no motivation. They can read intentionality by studying our body language in a very basic sense, but they can't really get into our minds because they are not homo sapiens. Mm. Uh, they can't make that leap, for the moment anyway. Now second, uh, is they're non-teleological, so they, they don't really ask themselves the important questions. Why am I, am I on this battlefield? Uh, who's put me here in a position to be shot? Who's the real enemy? The people who are shooting at me or the rear echelon officers behind the scenes sitting at their desks in safety who put me in a position where I am in danger? The constant question of who the real de uh, enemy is, which is thousands of years old. We want to be useful. We want to be used. To be used sounds rather pejorative, but actually we can only be useful if we are used by the institutions that we work for or the families that we belong to or the social networks that we tap into and that give us our identity. Uh, machines don't want to be useful. They are programmed to be useful. In other words, there's no giftedness in life. The example I cite is that they would they might self-destruct, if programmed to self-destruct rather than fall into the hands of an enemy, but they can't do what a human being can, and occasionally does do, throw himself or herself on a grenade to save two other people, friends who happen to be standing in the vicinity. As the great uh, 
philosopher uh, Alistair McIntyre uh, said, you can't court-martial a soldier for not throwing himself on a grenade. You can court-martial a soldier for disobedience, for mutiny, for desertion, but not for refusing to sacrifice himself for another. That is a gift. The third and final element is rationality. So we're not logical creatures, although we use logic and play logical games, as I've said, like chess, we're, re we're rational. And uh, our rationality allows us to act apparently irrationally. It allows us to be unreasonable as well as reasonable. It allows us to make certain calculations which many people might think to be irrational, but for us are not necessarily irrational. And for that, we have developed a social and an emotional intelligence which allows us to navigate through a human-built world. This is the world that we ourselves have built for ourselves. And machines would not be able to navigate themselves through that world. That is why I don't believe it is possible to program machines with a conscience or an ethical set of protocols which will allow them to act in particular ways. So just making a machine able to make decisions doesn't mean that they'll make better decisions. So I suppose if you were to sum all of this up in a sentence, it would be that we can create machines that are uh, cleverer than us in the sense of doing the data crunching, because basically they work on data, but they're not necessarily clever, cleverer than us at making judgment calls. And the difference between victory and defeat, the difference between acting well and acting badly in war, is usually the judgment calls that you actually make. A word you could use is intuition. It's not necessarily a word I would use, but it's the type of thing that is basically very, very human. So until such time as the machines wake up, if they ever do, and many AI specialists believe that will never happen, but until that day that they can really take decisions for themselves, it's called a singularity um, by some scientists, then I think we will remain in control. Having said that, it's important to recognize that malfunctions, mechanical malfunctions, engineering uh, design flaws, spoofing and hacking, that's enemies turning a machine against us, uh, and, and just basically a lack of engineering skills. So the first set of these machines are not necessarily going to be the best of them. All of these are going to have an important uh, role as well. So I don't mitigate those disasters. The bottom line, if there's a takeaway, and business conventions love giving the companies, employees who attend them, a takeaway, is project fear. In pretending that there's a Skynet moment, in pretending that the Terminators are going to are just over the horizon, we are forgetting the fact that these machines are of our design and of our making and that we're making them because we wish to stay in the war business. And if we dislike autonomous systems, we shouldn't be really targeting them. We should be targeting the fact that we still want to remain in the war business, because that's the only terms on which we can continue to do so if you're an advanced post-industrial digitalized society. But there's also the question of how these um, machines and robotics influence the conception of war. You have once, de once described war as a conversation based on arguments and counter-arguments, but also something which depends on us recognizing the humanity in our enemies and vice versa. But what are the implications for the idea of war as a conversation and also the ability to recognize humanity in the other 
in an age of drones and robotics? Well, you are human, I think, only to the extent that others recognize their humanity in you. So it may be inhumane to try to kill another human being, but remember that war is a conversation. It's about power, very largely. It's about who wins the argument, or who gets to win the argument, at least for a time, until the second round, if there's going to be a second round, and possibly even a third round. And you have to have enough respect to engage in this conversation. Could you have a conversation with a machine that doesn't have self-consciousness? And I think the argument is, no, you can't. One of the reasons why drones are so much disliked is that people do not like being vaporized from thousands of miles away by someone that they never actually see. I think this was put well by Seb Younger in his book, War. He actually saw a, a, a Taliban operative being vaporized, but this time by an Apache helicopter that came over a hill, it had been hiding behind the hill, came over the hill and uh, used 2,000 rounds of ammunition um, to kill that particular um, Taliban operative. Overkill, you might say. There was nothing left of his body at the end. He had literally been vaporized. But not by a drone pilot, but by a pilot sitting in an Apache helicopter cockpit, looking eye to eye into the eyes of the Taliban person, quite possibly. Um, of course, Younger's question was, what's the difference? Being vaporized by a Nevada pilot who's sitting 9,000 miles away, or by somebody who you might see briefly for a nanosecond before the bullets begin to fly. And he raised that question uh, with regard to the concept of human dignity, which is incorporated in international humanitarian law. It's called the Martin's Clause. It's been, it was put there some years ago. It's that you must only kill a person, because killing is, of course, perfectly acceptable in international law in certain circumstances, but you must only kill a person in a way that is consistent with the dignity of that person. Now, some people think that means you must be at equal risk, that you must be at risk yourself. Well, we've gone away from that. I mean, we've tried to minimize human risk for, for centuries. Distance has been part of the reality of the changing character of war for a very long time. The machine gunners in the First World War were fairly distant from the people that they were machine gunning down in no man's land when they came over the top and charged the enemy trenches. A missile uh, operative, uh, we've had missile operatives since the late 1940s, thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away. When the machines can program themselves and then decide which targets to take, who to take out, how to take them out, and when to take them out, well, then we will have been remo we'll remove ourselves from, human, from the human decision-making loop. And at that point, you may say that we have absolved ourselves of responsibility for our actions. And by absolving ourselves of responsibility, we have ceased to be part of a human conversation. Uh, so I think, yes, uh, you, a drone can be part of a human conversation, but it has to be a conversation uh, in which there is a, a person on the loop, in the loop, but certainly not out of the loop. I'd say one thing about drone pilots. The incidents of post-traumatic stress are now almost epidemic in the, the US Air Force. In fact, the number of 
pilots, uh, I think the figure I saw is they only have 73% of the number of pilots that they actually need because people are no longer volunteering to become drone pilots. They've read the stories, they've seen the, the Netflix series, they've gone to the movies. It's not entirely rewarding. There are many explanations for why post-traumatic stress is quite high. Not all of them are, shall we say, humanitarian. Some have more to do with institutionalization, looking at a TV screen for eight hours a day without relief. But whatever the explanations are, I would still say drone strikes are part of the human conversation, both for the operative and for the commanders who uh, order the strikes. We haven't got there yet to the point where we've taken ourselves out of the conversation, or if by taking ourselves out of the conversation, we've ceased to have a conversation. It becomes something quite different. Right. Related to this, I would like to ask you about what you have once called uh, the warrior ethos or related to that. And for quite some time now, we have spoken of post-heroic warfare, yet we still seem to cling to the idea of war heroes. How do you explain this? And do you think we will continue to do so in the future as drone and robotic warfare will develop ever more? Well, my model of warfare is that it's a three-dimensional world, not a one-dimensional world. And the three dimensions are the instrumental uh, nature of war, what Clausewitz calls continuation of politics by other means. So it's a political action. There are political actors who usually are not in a position themselves of any risk. They don't actually do the fighting. Or for the last few hundred years, they haven't done the fighting. And they have a reason to go to war. Uh, whatever that reason may be, it's an instrumental. It's means and ends, basically. But we also have the existential element of war. People have to do um, the fighting, and they will be doing it for many reasons. Some will be conscripted. That's traditionally been, unfortunately, the reality for many. Some have done it for profit. You can make some money. Looting has been a way in which war has been self-financing for a very long time. Uh, John Keegan, the historian, actually argued that when the looting was forbidden by international law, which is around about the mid-19th century, we introduced medals for the first time. So that although you wouldn't return richer from war than you had, you would have status, you would have a medal. And that was a form of uh, self-empowerment um, for people suffering from status anxiety for whatever reasons, which I think is an interesting uh, idea. And then, of course, there's the dying element in all of this. So people often think that war is all about killing but actually, it's more about dying. And the interesting thing is, it's not difficult, I think, in the end to get someone to kill another. There are difficulties, of course, I know about that. But it's very difficult to get someone to die. It's against all our basic uh, instincts. And dying is what gives war its sacred nature, its sacrifice, which is a word, of course, in English derived from the, the Latin word sacca for sacred. And that's the metaphysical element. That is the ultimate legitimizing factor in people's minds about a war, that people are willing to sacrifice each other, not for a cause and not for a country. That's very rarely the case, though there are examples of that, but for each other, for the brotherhood of warriors. And that's what the warrior ethos is, is all about, going the extra mile for your friends. Because friendship, traditionally in war, has, I think, been the most important factor behind morale, behind unity, uh, even in defeat. And friendship is the ennobling factor, the, the, the factor that people miss most when they come home, because they go back to a civilian life where, of course, you have friends, 
but you're never going to have to sacrifice yourself for those friends financially, physically, or whatever. And therefore, the intensity of that relationship uh, is, is going to be absent. There's an interesting passage in Seb Younger's book, War. Younger was an embedded journalist for an American military unit in the Korangol Valley in Afghanistan. And he cites an episode in which he met with one of his friends, the friends he made in the unit in New York, uh, many months after they both returned from the theater. And his friend was a damaged human being, was suffering from post-traumatic stress, uh, was alcoholic, um, was suffering from a condition in which you can't derive any enjoyment uh, from life. Nothing is enjoyable. And yet, his friend said in one of his alcoholic hazes, you know, you people, meaning you civilians, think that the reason we are traumatized is because of the horrors we've seen. But actually, some of us are traumatized because we miss it. Uh, and what he was missing in particular was that element of, of, of friendship. Not the combat experience, but the friendship. So for those factors, a lot of that is, is the warrior ethos. Um, what's interesting in the warrior ethos is it's been re-imagined uh, recently by military sociologists. A lot of emphasis now put on professionalism, that people respect each other, not actually because of friendship so much as liking a person, but as actually respecting their skills. Because if they're skilled, you're less likely to get killed if they happen to be standing next to you. And yes, sure, you might prefer B rather than A, but if B is not that skilled, you might get your head blown off. So I think professionalism is also extremely important in traditional militaries sent out to deploy by the state. So that's the warrior ethos. Great. Thank you so much Thank for you. sharing your insights with us.